And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West, the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is April the 6th. Tomorrow is Good Friday. It's the 96th day of the year. 269 days remain to the year's over with. And since you all had asked for <clears throat> holidays and observances, it's Maundy Thursday. This refers to the foot washing Jesus provided the apostles prior to the Last Supper. National Burrito Day. National Siamese Cat Day. I had one for many, many years until it was murdered. National Student Athlete Day. New Beers Eve. 1933, the government ended Prohibition. Date was April 7th. So grab a beer and toast your ability to drink it. Unless you uh, are not exactly a fan of woke, which means you won't get any Anheuser-Busch beer. It's Army Day. Boring Optus Syndrome Day. California Poppy Day. Chakri Day celebrates a Chakri royal family. 350 years old. Uh, they're in Thailand. Uh, Drowsy Driver Awareness Day. Fresh Tomato Day. Holy Thursday. Hostess Twinkie Day. International Day of Sport for Development and Peace. As if that's going to do any good. Jump Over Things Day. Nefelser Fart. Um, you take a pilgrimage to the site of the Habsburg Battles. National Akai Bowl Day. National Alcohol Screening Day. National Caramel Popcorn Day. That's one I can get behind. National Carbonara Day. National Employee Benefits Day. National Food Faces Day. Um, National Gang Day. National J Day. National Library Day. National Pajama Day. National Parker Day. National Robert Day. National Charlie Charlie Day. National Student Athlete Day, National Tartan Day, National Taylor Day, National Teflon Day, and I mentioned earlier, New Beer's Eve, um, the Ravada New Year, uh, it uh, unites Buddhist and self-reflection and meditation wherever, whenever it, uh, wherever it's celebrated, and National Table Tennis Day. Now, as you might guess, most folks don't have a clue about most of these holidays observances, and I didn't either until I started looking them up at the request of a listener. See, we do react to logical, calm requests. Don't react well to orders. 46 B.C., Julius Caesar defeats... Caligus, Metellus, Scipio, Marcus Porcius Cato, 
also known as Cato the Younger, at the Battle of Thapsus. 402, Stilicho defeats the Visigoths under Alaric in the Battle of Pollentia. 1320, Scots reformed independence by signing the Declaration of Aberroth. 1453, Mehmed II begins his siege of Constantinople. City falls May 29th and is renamed Istanbul. 1580, one of the largest earthquakes recorded in the history of England, Flanders, and northern France takes place on this date. I've been in one earthquake. It was a bizarre experience. 1652, at the Cape of Good Hope, Dutch sailor Jan van Riebeck establishes a resupply camp that eventually becomes Cape Town. 1712, the New York Slave Revolt of 1712 begins near Broadway. 1776, American Revolutionary War. Ships of the Continental Navy fail in their attempt to capture a Royal Navy dispatch boat. 1782, King Buddha Yodfa, Chiloloki, also known as Rama I of Siam, and Siam, of course, is modern-day Thailand, establishes the Chakri dynasty. 1793, during the French Revolution, the Committee of Public Safety becomes the executive organ of the Republic. 1800, the Treaty of Constantinople establishes the Septensular Republic, the first autonomous of Greek states since the fall of the Byzantine Empire. Um, under the old-style calendar that in use in the Ottoman Empire, the treaty was signed actually on March 21st. 1808, John Jacob Astor incorporates American Fur Company. That would eventually make him America's first millionaire. 1812, British forces under the command of the Duke of Wellington assault the fortress of Badajoz. That would be the turning point of the Peninsula War against Napoleon-led France. 1814, nominal beginning of the Bourbon Restoration. This is the anniversary date when Napoleon abdicates as he exiled Elba. It was discovered, to everyone's shock, that uh, Napoleon was actually murdered, arsenic poisoning. 1830, Church of Christ, the original church of the Latter-day Saint movement, is organized by Joseph Smith and others at uh, either Fayette or Manchester, New York. 1841, President Tyler is sworn in two days after having become president when Henry, uh, William Henry Harrison died. 1860, the Rear Honors Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, later renamed uh, the Community of Christ, is organized by Joseph Smith III and others at Amboy, Illinois. 1862, American Civil War, Battle of Shiloh begins. That was fought on the family land. It took place in Tennessee when forces under Union General Grant that Confederate troops led by Gilbert, uh, General Albert Sidney Johnston. 1865, American Civil War. Battle of Sailor's Creek. Confederate General Robert E. Lee's Army in Northern Virginia fights and loses its last major battle on retreat from Richmond during the Appomattox Campaign. 1866, and I understand from reading, um, because I read a book a day since I was old enough to carry one, the only reason the uh, Lee's army surrendered is they ran out of food. A, uh, a train that was supposed to be loaded with food uh, actually had ammunition. 
They could have fought on for another year, but they didn't have anything to eat, so they gave up. 1866, the Grand Army of the Republic, an American patriotic organization opposed of Union veterans in the American Civil War, is founded. Lasted till 1956. 1896, in Athens, the opening of the first modern Olympic Games is celebrated. 1,500 years after the original Games were banned by the Roman Emperor Theodosius I. 1909, Robert Perry and Matthew Henson becomes the first people to reach the North Pole. Paris claims has been disputed because of failings in his navigational ability. 1911, during the Battle of Dessie, Dedi Gonatluli the leader of the Alessari Albanians, raises the Albanian flag in a town of Tuzi in Montenegro. Uh, it was done for the first time after... Uh, George Castriotti. 1917, World War I. U.S. declares war on Germany on this date. 1918, Finnish Civil War. The Battle of Tampere ends. 1926, Varney Airlines makes its first commercial flight. Uh, Varney, in case you don't know, is the root company of the United Airlines. 1929, Huey P. Long, governor of Louisiana, is impeached by the Louisiana House of Representatives. 1930, the end of the Salt March. Gandhi raises a lump of mud and Salt declares with this, I'm shaking the foundations of the British Empire. 1936, Tupelo-Gainesville tornado outbreak. Another tornado from that same storm system uh, took place as the uh, Tupelo tornado hits Gainesville, Georgia, kills 203. 1941, World War II, Nazi Germany launches what they called Operation 25. That was the invasion of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia and Operation Marita, the invasion of Greece. 1945, World War II, Sarajevo is liberated from German and Croatian forces by the Yugoslav partisans. Also on this date in World War II, uh, the Battle of Slater's Knoll in uh, Bougainville comes to an end. This date, 1947, the first Tony Awards are presented for theatrical, theatrical achievement. 1957, the flag carrier airline of Greece for decades, Olympic Airways, is founded by Aristotle Onassis following the acquisition of TAE, which was the Greek National Airlines. 1958, Capital Airlines Flight 67 crashes into Saginaw Bay near Freeland, Michigan, kills 47. 1965, launch of Early Bird, the first commercial communication satellite to be placed in geosynchronous orbit, took place on this date. 1968, in the downtown district of Richmond, Indiana, a double explosion kills 41 and injures 150. 1968, Pierre Elliott Trudeau wins the Liberal Party's leadership election, becomes Prime Minister of Canada shortly after that. 1970, New Hall Massacre. Four California Highway Patrol officers are killed in a shootout. 1972, Vietnam War, the Easter Offensive. American forces began sustained airstrikes and naval bombardments. 1973, this date saw the launch of Pioneer 11, a spacecraft. 1973, the American League of Major League Baseball begins using the designated hitter. 1984, members of Cameroon's Republican Guard unsuccessfully attempt to overthrow the government headed by Paul Biya. 1985, Sudanese President Gaffar 
Namiri's ousted from power in a coup d'etat led by Field Marshal Abdel Rahman Swar al Dahab. 1992, the Bosnian War begins. 1994, the Rwandan genocide begins when the aircraft carrying Rwandan President Juvenal Abiyamarana and Burundian President uh, Cyprian Atayimara were shot down. 1997, in Greene County, Tennessee, the Lillefeld, um, excuse me, the Lily Lid murders occur. Yeah, Lily Lid. Three members of the Lily Lid family are killed on April 6th, 1997. Vidar, Lily Lid, age 34. Delfina, Lily Lid, age 28. And her daughter, Tabitha, who was six, and son, Peter, who was two, were shot on a, desert, a deserted rural road near Bailyton after a carjacking committed by a group of youth. Vidar and Delfina found dead at the scene, and Tabitha died shortly after being transported to the hospital. Uh, Peter survived, but as a result of the shooting, was left with disabilities. Six young people from Kentucky, including two minors, are convicted of felony murder for the three deaths. Each got three life sentences and an additional sentence of 25 years for the attempted murder of Peter. The um, the ages of the um, those accused range from 14 to 20. They came from Pikeville, Kentucky. Jason Bryant, Natasha Cornett, Dean Mullins, Joseph Reisner, Crystal Sergio, and Karen Howell were traveling to New Orleans. Shortly after leaving Pikeville, they realized that Reisner's car wasn't going to make it, so they discussed stealing a vehicle from a parking lot or maybe a dealership. They had two handguns, one a 9mm and another a 25 caliber. At a rest stop along Interstate 81 outside Bailington, uh, witnesses observed six youths in conversation with the Lily Lid family who were coming back from a religious convention. The, um, you know, sometimes folks don't consider the consequences of their actions. 1998, nuclear weapons testing. Pakistan tests medium range missiles capable of reaching India. 2004, Rwanda's Paxas becomes the first president of Lithuania to be peacefully removed from office by impeachment. That's a, uh, a first you don't want to achieve. 2005, Kurdish leader Jalal Talabani becomes Iraqi president. Shiite uh, Arab Ibrahim al-Jafari is named premier the next day. 2008, the 2008 Egyptian general strike starts, uh, led by Egyptian workers, later to be adopted by April 6th youth movement and Egyptian activists. You know, so a lot of times people want to be activists simply because it sounds cool and they really don't know what they're being activists about, but they just want to be activists. 2009, a 6.3 magnitude earthquake strikes near Alaquia, Italy, killing 307. 2010, Maoist rebels killed 76 CRPF officers in Dantawada district in India. 2011, San Fernando, Tamaulipas, Mexico, over 193 victims of Los Zetas are exhumed from several mass graves. 2012, Azawad declares itself independent from the Republic of Mali. 
2017, U.S. military launches 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles at an airbase in Syria. Russia describes the strikes as an aggression, adding this damage U.S.-Russian ties. And in 2018, a bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos junior ice hockey team collides with a semi-truck in Saskatchewan, Canada, killing 16 people and injuring 13 others. Well, let's see what else we got, if anything. The, um, at the request of several listeners, today and tomorrow, I'm going to talk about some more strange crimes before going back to talking about uh, the evidence that there are giants in America, or were a race of giants in America. You know, very few people seem to realize destroying currency is actually a crime. But destroying about 1.35 million U.S. dollars in the name of art is a particularly strange crime. Why would somebody burn that much cash? Well, don't ask Bill Drummond or Jimmy Conti, two former pop stars turned performance artists to pull that stunt in 1994. After the fact, they really weren't sure why they did it. The duo, who were known as the K Foundation, decided to burn their profits from their defunct music career in the name of art. And a year later, they actually released a film called Watch the K Foundation Burn a Million Quid. consisted of 67 minutes of the artist tossing 50-pound notes into a fire. And after each screening, there'd be a question-and-answer session in which Drummond and Conti would actually ask the audience questions. The tour got mixed reviews, as you might guess. Apparently, wanting destroying cash angers a lot of people. Despite recording their strange crime, they were never charged. And they still can't sum up their exact motivation. Drummond made the comment, I wish I could explain why I did it so people would understand. It's a hard one to explain to your kids, and it doesn't get any easier as time goes on. That uh, $1.35 million could uh, have given them a nice retirement. Well, story came out of Moldova. It's an Eastern European country. Reported in 2005, they're... Police were on the lookout for a robber who hypnotized bank clerks. The hypno-thief, as they called him, was identified as 49-year-old Vladimir Kozak, trained hypnotist from Russia. Police said Kozak would start a conversation with the teller, make eye contact, and put the teller under a hypnotic trance. Then he'd tell the teller to hand over all the cash in the till. His total haul? Nearly $40,000. One clerk in the city of Chisinau apparently handed over more than $12,000. Police put wanted posters with Kozak's face every place they could think of, but warned bank clerks not to make eye contact with it or him. A lot of strange things happen in this world. You know, according to amateur filmmaker March Twitchell's Facebook profile, Mark had way too much in common with Dexter Morgan. Now, you might ask who Dexter Morgan was. 
He's the fictional lead character on the TV show Dexter about a crime scene investigator, played by Michael C. Hall, who moonlights as a vigilante who traps and murders rapists and serial killers. In November 2008, Twitchell, who was from Edmonton, Alberta, turned one of Dexter's plots into a real-life nightmare. After he answered an online personal ad pretending to be a young woman, he lured uh, 38-year-old Johnny Altinger to his house. Except Altinger wasn't a serial killer. He just man wanted a date. His body was never found. Police identified enough evidence in Twitchell's garage, including a script to a, a show that detailed the plot, to charge him with first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. Um... The body of Altinger was never found. And, you know, it's it's hard but not impossible to convict somebody of murder without a body. Well, let's talk about a cold case that actually grabbed national attention not once, but twice. When the Westfield, New Jersey Police Department received a call to check out the List family Victoria Mansion on uh, Hillside Avenue, they figured it was just a routine call. The list supposedly away visiting a sick relative, but neighbors and friends had grown concerned. For over a month, there had been no communication from anybody in the family. And even though all the lights were on, there was no obvious signs of people being in the house. Well, police arrived, and the doors were locked, but they didn't find an unlocked window. So they uh, entered the residence and made a bizarre discovery. Inside the cold mansion... Loud organ music played over an intercom system. Officers went into the mansion's vast ballroom where they discovered four bodies. Helen List and her three teenage children, Patty, John Jr., and Frederick. Upstairs, Helen's mother-in-law, Alma List, was dead in her attic apartment. But the, the patriarch of the family was nowhere to be found. Though police and the FBI immediately set up an intensive search for John List, one week after the bodies were discovered, the authorities admitted the trail had gone cold. Having told everybody the family's leaving town, List delayed the discovery of the body for 28 days. And though police didn't know it, List had actually moved to Denver, Colorado, and established a new identity with a phony social security number and the alias Robert P. Clark. In 1989, 18 years later, America's Most Wanted decided to run an episode that featured the List case. The problem? They had to figure out what he might look like 20 years later. So they turned to forensic sculptor Frank Bender, asked him to make an Asia progression bust of 64-year-old John List. When the bust was televised on America's Most Wanted, friends of a man named Bob Clark were astounded. See how much he resembled the murderer from New Jersey? And the show brought in a tip that Bob Clark had moved from Colorado to Virginia. Well, this was apprehended based on uh, tips that were called in. It was actually tied to New Jersey for trial. The jury found List guilty, and he was actually sentenced to life in prison. And a mysterious act of suspected arson, the List home burned down nine months after the murders. The fire demolished the house, all destroyed the ballroom's Tiffany stained glass ceiling. It was an signed original that was worth at least $100,000 in 1971. 
ironically, had List uh, understood its value, he could have sold that magnificent ceiling, kept his house, and solved all his financial problems and had cash left over to put in the bank. Unfortunately, he didn't know. Well, after a domestic violence conviction in April of 2009, Donald Sexton was ordered to stay away from his wife, Tammy, for six months. But a week into the restraining order, he went to her rural Mississippi home in the middle of the night intending to murder her. As Tammy Sexton laid in her bed, Donald shot her in the head and went outside and shot himself. He died instantly. Unfortunately, the same couldn't be said of Tammy. When the police arrived, she was conscious and had a rag around her head was drinking a cup of tea. Medical examination at the uh, University of Alabama revealed that the thirty-eight caliber bullet had somehow entered her forehead and exited through the back of her head, passing through the lobes of her brain without leaving any damage whatsoever. Well, if she had nothing in her head, she'd have been a shoe-in for Congress. Sheriff investigating the case, his name was Mike Bird, he expressed his own amazement at the unlikeliness of such an occurrence. You just don't hear something like this. Somebody gets shot in the head, they're normally dead. Well, you know, sometimes... Reporters clearly didn't have any grammar or education as they grew up. Let's talk about some, well, I guess you can call them criminal headlines. First one is juvenile court to try shooting defendant. Well, I've known a number of juveniles I think should have been shot, but that's just me. Man robs, then kills himself. What do he do with the money then? New Jersey judge to rule on nude beach. I'd have thought he'd done better to rule in the courtroom. Mayor says D.C. is safe except for murders. Well, yeah, that's probably true. Man shot twice in head, gets mad. Deadline passes for striking police. I guess if somebody shot me in the head, I'd get mad too. Cockroach slain, husband badly hurt. Who would kill a cockroach? Unless there's assuming the husband is a cockroach or was a cockroach. Man shoots neighbor with machete. Where do you load it? 32 ignorant enough to serve on North Jury. I'd want folks that were a little better than ignorant to be on my jury, but that's just me. Hostages take her, kill cell, police shoot each other. Are we talking about the Keystone cops here? Potential witness to murder drunk. Before or after the murder? Prosecutor releases probe into undersheriff. Now, I hope there are no children present when he did that. Bomb hit by library. Okay. Was that one of those, uh... Bookmobiles, maybe? 
Robert holds up Albert's hosiery. That's kind of kinky. Multiple personality rapers sentenced to two life terms. Well, that would depend on how many multiple personalities he had. Stolen painting found by tree. We are deputizing trees now. Man struck by lightning faces battery charges. Only if he was holding it when the lightning struck. Man found dead in cemetery. I have I have no idea what to say about that one. I do know some cemeteries folks are dying to get into, but that's a whole other story. Bar trying to help alcoholic lawyers. Set up another round. It's on the house. Defendant's speech ends in long sentence. Back in my day, they called that a run-on sentence. 42% of all murdered women are killed by the same man. Man, he does get around. Silent teamster, uh, teamster gets crucial, gets cruel punishment. Lawyer. Don't even begin to try to understand that one. Crack found in man's buttocks. Must have been a plumber. Two convicts evade the noose. Jury is hung. Okay. Well, it's in, it, Martin Scorsese made the comment once upon a time that uh, it's interesting that these themes of crime and political corruption are always relevant. There's nothing new under the sun. Let's talk about dumb crimes. Man walks into a gas station with a knife and demanded the attendant give him all the money in the cash register. The attendant replied he had to buy something before he could open the register. Well, the confused robber said, well, he didn't have any money, so he couldn't buy anything. And the attendant said, well, she was sorry. There's nothing she could do. She had to follow the rules. So the crook left, empty-handed. While learning a bank, the thief fell head over heels in love with the teller he was robbing. And he got away. But he was so infatuated, he actually called the teller at the bank to ask for a date. So the teller carried on a long conversation with him. Didn't make a date, but she kept him on the line long enough for the police to trace the call. Which just shows you can't trust some folks. Well, in Long Beach, California, several employees of a large aerospace company got the bright idea to rob a bank on their lunch hour. They had everything planned, except for one minor detail. They forgot to remove their company ID tags while they were robbing the bank. Hello, my name is David Henderson. That was a clue, don't you know? Now, one night in 2007, Damon Armagost visited Deja Vu. 
a gentleman's club in Nashville, Tennessee, where he lavishly tipped the dancers. Well, the manager watched this with great interest and called the police. He didn't think something was right. Now, the police discovered all the money he was handing out was fake. He had downloaded an image of a $100 bill off the Internet and printed out a stack on his home printer. Now, if he used a 3D printer, it would probably worked. But it took an eagle-eyed young lady in a bikini to determine that the serial numbers on all the bills were the same. Well, Russian Tsar Ivan the Terrible died in 1584. Historians believe he was also the victim of poison, just like Napoleon. His youngest son, Dmitry Ivanovich, disappeared. Three men came forward in 1605, all claiming to be Dmitry and also claiming the right to ascend the throne. Now, Grigory Trempiev was determined to be the real one and ruled a czar from July 1605 until he was murdered in May of 1606. Not because he was a fraud. That wouldn't determine until a lot later, and he was a fraud. But he was murdered because he was believed to be the son of Ivan the Terrible. Well, in 2006, a Florida chiropractor named Rhonda Schroeder began dating New York Mets pitcher Pedro Martinez. And they met through a patient of Schroeder's named Shirley Gordon. When Martinez kept encouraging his new girlfriend to give Gordon gifts of hundreds of thousands of dollars, Schroeder realized her boyfriend probably wasn't the real Pedro Martinez and called the cops. And it turns out he wasn't the real Pedro Martinez. And he was already warned about the police on identity theft charges. This just added to it, don't you know? Well, in 1995, NFL Hall of Famer O.J. Simpson was found not guilty of murdering his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her boyfriend, her friend, Ronald Goldman. Now, Simpson may have been acquitted, but the court of public opinion found him guilty. His career as an, ad, an actor and a pitch man was over. In the 1997 civil suit brought by Goldman's family, Simpson was found liable in the death in order to pay Goldman's family $33.5 million. Now, personally, I think that was a violation of uh, res judicata and collateral estoppel. It had already been determined by a court of competent jurisdiction he did not commit the murder. So how could he be financially liable for the murder, for wrongful death? Initially, Simpson managed to avoid paying because California law protected his NFL pension. But the Goldmans didn't back down, and in 1999, Simpson auctioned off his Heisman Trophy and other memorabilia to pay the Goldmans a half million dollars. To avoid paying more and to escape a back taxes bill in excess of a million, Simpson moved to Florida to protect his estate. December 2001, FBI agents searched his Florida home after getting the tip that he was involved in a drug trafficking ring. They didn't find any narcotics on the premises, but they did discover O.J. was powered in cable leading to tens of thousands of dollars in fines and legal fees. A year later, Simpson was caught spending, uh, speeding a 30-foot powerboat through a wildlife protection zone and got hit with another fine. But despite all his various run-ins with the law, he was still a free man. Well, 
September 13, 2007, Simpson and a group of men burst into Bruce Fromong's room at the Palace Station Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Simpson was convinced that Fromong, a sports memorabilia dealer, had stolen from his NFL mementos. Simpson and the group fled the scene after nabbing several items. Next day, he told a Los Angeles Times reporter he wasn't a suspect. He said, I'm O.J. Simpson. How am I going to think I'm going to rob somebody and get away with it? He also made the quip, uh, I thought what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, unfortunately for Simpson, one of his accomplices bought a tape recorder along to the crime. Former NFL star was arrested a few days later on charges that included robbery and conspiracy. Simpson was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to prison on December. Put it on one more time. In December 2008, presiding judge offered him little leniency and demanded that eight of the ten counts run concurrently for a maximum sentence of 33 years. Simpson served nine years in prison, released in late 2017. You know, I noticed on the streaming channels, because we, we stream now, the movie Scream has played several times. Do you know the villain in the movie Scream was based on a Florida serial killer known as the Gainesville Ripper? Well, there's an interesting saying by none other than Al Capone. A smile can get you far, but a smile with a gun can get you a whole lot further. And that is true. You know, sometimes the nicknames that are given to killers defy explanation. Let's talk about the gorilla killer. Now, nobody knows the origin of this nickname. But it has led to some wild stories. Between February 1926 and June 1927, Earl Leonard Nelson murdered 22 women. They're all boarding house landladies in various locations across the U.S. and Canada. He was finally convicted of two of the murders and executed by hanging in Winnipeg, Manitoba in 1928. Now, the exact story of how he got this odd name appears to have been lost, and there are a number of versions that are floating around today. One suggests he got the name because of the strength he exhibited in carrying out his crimes. He strangled all his victims with his bare hands. Now, gorillas are not noted for practicing strangulation. There's another story that he had a severely receding forehead, large protruding lips, and very large hands, the combination of which is supposed to have made him look like a gorilla. But, as odd as that was, there's an even odder one. Investigators interviewed Nelson's aunt during his killing spree, and she told him that as a young boy, he had been struck by a trolley and sent into a coma for several days. After he woke up, he suffered periods of mania, during which he would curl up his legs and walk around on his hands, making him look, she said, like a gorilla. Well, whatever may have been the situation, he didn't want a monkey with him. April 2005, 18-year-old Nicholas Buckaloo of Marsville, Vermont, decided he wanted to be creative and make an unusual bong. For those of you with classical education, a bong was a large marijuana pipe. 
Late one night, Buckaloo went into a cemetery, broke into an above-ground tomb, and took the skull from an interred body along with the eyeglasses and bow tie that were with him. <coughs> Police said he told friends he was going to bleach the skull and make a pipe out of it. 2006, he pled guilty to intentionally moving a tombstone and intentionally carrying away the remains of a human body. He was sentenced to one to seven years in prison. You know, 1959 movie Psycho. Uh, that was Robert Block's, don't you know? Uh, he wrote the, the novel Psycho, and Alfred Hitchcock made the film that starred Anthony Perkins. Innkeeper Norman Bates impersonates his dead mother and blames her for the crimes that he commits. Now, in a case of real life mimicking uh, art, 2003, Thomas Parkin of New York City pretended to be his deceased mother so he could collect her Social Security and benefits. Even wore a wig and sunglasses and painted nails when he went to the DMV to renew her driver's license. 2009, the police finally got around to arresting him. Parkin said, I held my mother when she was dying and breathed in her last breath, so I am my mother. That raises the interesting question, which came first, the chicken or the idiot? Well, I'm sure you've all heard the slogan, take a bite out of crime. But you know, there was a real scruff McGruff. In 1980, the nonprofit National Crime Prevention Council hired ad agency Sachi and Sachi to create a kid-friendly mascot and slogan. Copywriter John Keel considered a lion who roars at crime and an elephant who stomps out crime, but finally opted for a dog that takes a bite out of crime. Inspired by TV's Columbo, artist drew the dog as a grizzled gum shoe and a trench coat, and his character appeared in public service announcements, with Keel providing the voice urging kids to report any crime they witnessed from bullying to drug dealing. Now, the dog wasn't named until a 1982 contest. Uh, New Orleans uh, police officers suggested McGruff the crime dog. The runner-up was Sherlock Bones. Before you think the the, uh, the whole thing went to the dogs, uh, might I point out that it uh, still occasionally runs. The NCPC says that 75% of American children today recognize and trust McGruff, and they know his slogan. Take a bite out of crime. It works every time. Well, I run into this situation. What do you get when you combine a robe, a gavel, and delusions of grandeur? While presiding over deliberations in a drunk driving case, Lakewood, Washington, Municipal Court Judge Ralph Baldwin disappeared into his chambers and came back a short time later with a 12-pack of beer. Then he invited the attorneys and the jurors and the court staff to stay for a cool one, but admonished him not to tell anybody. He said, I'll deny it if you repeat it. And afterwards, he brazenly carried an open container of beer to his car, telling all workers, I might as well drink and drive. I do it all the time anyway. Baldwin later admitted he made the statement, but claimed he was joking that the beer can was empty. 
Well. Well, running for re-election in 2008, Philadelphia traffic court judge William Singletary, also a church deacon, attended a Blessing of the Bikes motorcycle club gathering at a Philadelphia park. If y'all can give me $20, he said over the PA system, you're going to need me in traffic court. Am I right about that? Now you all want me to get there. Video footage of the deacon's attempted bribe soon found its way onto YouTube and then to the authorities. Singletary was charged with four counts of misconduct and found guilty on all four. Enough to cost him the judgeship. Now, these are local judges. Do you know what the the usual uh, hallucination of a federal judge is? That he's God. Elizabeth Halverson, Clark County, Nevada District Court judge, took the bench in January 2007. In her first few months on the job, the state's Judicial Discipline Commission got more than a dozen complaints about her behavior. They alleged that Halverson abused court staff with racial and religious slurs, sexually harassed a bailiff, and made him feel like a houseboy by assigning him menial personal chores, hired a computer technician to hack into a courthouse email accounts, made false statements to the media or about three other judges she believed were conspiring against her, fell asleep on the bench during two criminal trials and ordered a clerk to swear on her husband so he, she could question him under oath about whether he had completed his chores at home. She reportedly asked one court employee, do you want to worship me from near or from afar? Six months into her judgeship, she was suspended and charged with 14 counts of judicial misconduct. 2008, she was removed from the bench for life. Well, you know, sometimes... You have a lot of violent criminals in the news with the middle name of Wayne. That happened in 1996. Conan Wayne Hale confessed to his priest to kill three people. Now, the priest, of course, if he violated the rules of confession, should never have told about this. Michael Wayne Thompson, a murderer who escaped from prison, was subject of a multi-state manhunt. He was found in Indiana. Danny Wayne Owens murdered his neighbor in Alabama. Elvis Wayne Felker executed for the 1981 murder of a college student. Larry Wayne Cole died while running from the law on rape charges. Does having the name Wayne somehow make you a little bit more violent? Well, we don't really know. How would you like to have the reputation of the toilet seat whistleblower? I would not want to blow any whistles on a toilet seat. A. Ernest Fitzgerald, a top civilian, Air Force auditor in the U.S. Department of Defense, testified before Congress in 1968 that $2 billion in cost overruns had occurred in the military's Lockheed C-5A cargo plane program. He'd been reporting this to his superiors for two years. They took no action and pressured him, pressured him not to testify. When he did testify, they retaliated by stripping him of his civil service tenure, saying that it awarded, had been awarded to him erroneously due to a computer error, and his department was 
restructured to eliminate his position. He was demoted to minor investigations, including cost overruns at a bowling alley in Thailand. Fitzgerald was a U.S. Navy veteran, and he fought back by filing suit, and after a four-year battle was fully reinstated to his original position. And he continued to report cost overruns and fraud. The Reagan administration threatened employees with the loss of their job security clearances unless they uh, signed a gag order. Fitzgerald refused and beat back the order, which was withdrawn. But his greatest fame as a whistleblower came in the 1980s when he revealed that the Air Force was being billed $200 per hammer. $7,622 for coffee pots and $640 for a toilet seat. Wrote a book in 1972 called The High Priest of Waste and The Pentagonist, an insider's view of waste management and fraud and defense spending in 1989. Eventually, what became a great day in the Department of Defense in 2006, he retired. Well, let's talk about a, a case for uh, what you might call a case-by-case based judgment. Now, many states restrict or ban the sale of coal medicines that contain the ingredient pseudoephedrine because it can be used to make crystal methamphetamine. In Indiana, you can buy only a certain amount of pseudo uh, f, pseudo Ephedrine, ephed, yeah, pseudoephedrine-based medicines in a seven-day period. But 70-year-old Sally Harpold didn't know that. 2009, she bought a box of Zyrtec for her husband, who had allergies, and a few days later bought her adult daughter some Mucinex D for a cold. Well, she was arrested for the intent to manufacture crystal meth. The charges later dropped. You know, sometimes officers, well, they they forget what they're supposed to be doing, and they become another Barney Fife. Well, they run around and give everybody a ticket for this and that and the other. My favorite one was... Uh, There was an officer who used to uh, go by this guy's house every day just to make sure he stayed within the law. And the guy pulled out of his driveway as the deputy approached, and the deputy decided he was going too fast and backing out of his driveway and gave him a ticket. <coughs> well, the, the offended citizen filed a claim against the deputy for stalking. Which, um, had he been convicted of that, could have been construed as a felony. You know, just because somebody gives you a badge doesn't make you God. Yes, you're not a federal judge when you get a, a badge. Well, you know, sometimes famous people can be criminals too. For example, Naomi Campbell. 
On our way to the Toronto movie set of Prisoner of Love in 1998, this supermodel was delayed by Canadian customs officials. Finally getting to her hotel, she blamed her assistant, Georgina Galanis, for the wait and grabbed her by the throat and slammed her up against the wall. Still furious, Campbell reached for the telephone and hit Galanis twice in the head with a handset, then threatened to throw her from a moving car on a busy highway. The Toronto Criminal Court ordered Campbell to take anger management classes. But you have to ask yourself, did she learn anything in those classes? Or they, did they accomplish anything or just a waste of time? Apparently, in her case, it was a waste of time. In 2001, she went back to court for attacking another assistant. How about Marilyn Manson? Now, that's a strange one if you ever want to see one. This gender-bending rock star made headlines in September 2003 when a Minnesota jury found him not guilty of battery or any of the other charges against him, such as causing emotional distress and mental anguish and uh, humiliation. Charges were the result of a stunt during a 2000 concert. Security guard David Diaz was working in front of the stage when Manson suddenly grabbed him began rubbing his pelvis against Diaz's head. In uh, July 2001, while performing in Michigan, Manson pulled that same stunt on security guard Joshua Kiesler. This time he had to pay a $4,000 fine. And Russell Crowe. In 1999, while spending some time on his 560-acre ranch in Australia, Crowe and his brother Terry went out for a drink and wound up in a brawl. Crowe spied radio DJ Andrew White at a local bar, approached him and said, I've listened to your program and it's crap. And White replied, well, so on most of your movies, prompting Crow to turn to the DJ's wife and exclaim, I'm going to belt the crap out of your husband. And then he went after White and several other bargoers. Security cameras captured him in three separate fights, uh, kicking and punching and biting like a wild man. During the melee, uh, Crow even took a swing at his own brother before biting a bouncer on the neck and fleeing the bar. He also once attacked the director of the British Academy of Film and Television Arts Award show uh, after editing a four-line poem out of Crow's Best Actor Acceptance Speech. Witnesses said Crow's own security had to remove him, kicking and cursing. Just because you appear on TV, you know better than anybody else. You put your pants on the same way. Well... Let's talk about some folks that were armed and dumberous. Sometimes the most disturbing and menacing thing about some crooks is their collective IQ, or maybe lack. Police described the failed smart mart heist in Greentown, Indiana as a string of blunders. Blunder number one, when all four robbers, all men in their 20s, forced the clerk and three customers into the back room that failed to check the customers for cell phones. One of the customers called the cops. Blunder number two, one of the crooks dropped his credit card at the scene, which eventually led detectives to the criminal mastermind's headquarters, which was a trailer. And blunder number three, the trailer had a surveillance system that had recorded the criminals preparing for and returning from the heist. They had more evidence than they knew what to do with. To charge the robbers with several felonies. And on that note, we come to the end of today's show. 
We'll be back tomorrow, Good Friday, when once again we'll be talking about uh, strange crimes and completely stupid um, criminals. Till then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.